As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Audible is proud to have Trader Joe's as its presenting sponsor for 2018. Trader Joe's, where it's always game time and the game is value. What's value? At Trader Joe's, value is where quality and price come together. Snacks, great value. Drinks, great value. Fruits and veggies, great value. Learn more at TraderJoe's.com and at Trader Joe's on Instagram. Welcome to The Audible. I am Stuart Mandel, joined as always by Bruce Feldman, who just got back not too long ago from the NFL Combine in Indianapolis, and we are going to bring on our guest, Bruce's colleague Brady Quinn, here in a little bit to talk about the NFL Draft quarterback prospects. But in the meantime, Bruce, how was your jaunt to Indianapolis? It was good, Stu. It's always eventful, and you you learn a lot. It's good to reconnect with people. But I have to tell you, so I made a major rookie move. Maybe this includes as a rookie dad or as a rookie traveler. So I flew back first thing Sunday morning. I mean, I had a 5 a.m. wake-up call. I was out at the bars till I don't know, 1.30-ish, so I'm not getting much sleep. Get on this four-and-a-half-hour flight and a little hungover, no sleep guy next to me reeks of cologne so then i got on this early flight because my family had agreed that we were gonna my wife was gonna pick me up at the airport and we were gonna go right to the santa monica pier because there was like a like a fair that, or a carnival that we were supposed to go to and without really watching one of the rides that i agreed to take my son on i just like we got in we buckled down and then it was like one of those that's just like spinning upside down and backwards and within like the first 20 seconds, I'm like, man, I'm going to vomit on him. This is really such a stupid thing I've done. It Why do they allow, they allow three and a half year olds in rides that go upside down? It was when I say upside down, it was like you're spinning backwards and it's kind of tumbling. Okay. So, but yeah, it was just, he was fine. I was a little bit like little, it's not a good ride for somebody who's hung over and just getting off a plane. I felt like such an idiot for not even thinking it through, but uh, I survived. He was, he he emerged vomit free. So beyond that, the combine was interesting. Before we get to it, I do want to t- 
talk about something that we touched on last week, but it's kind of evolved since then. And it surprised me a little bit that in a conversation, it was really a hot topic. I can count at least three different times with NFL people who usually aren't like big studies of how the media is operating, but it certainly was a, another topic when you run into other sports writers and other media people. And that was the Sean Miller story with ESPN and Sean Miller's press conference. And actually I watched on the way out to Indy on Thursday uh, where he was pretty forceful in his defense and taking issue with that report. I don't know. I mean, maybe Sean Miller is Lance Armstrong or Rafael Palmeiro. We've seen people come out pretty strong and push back and then you know, prove to be lying through their teeth. What did you make of his response to this and how it's playing out? I think all of us sports writers have been watching this, you know, almost like it's a fascinating soap opera. I mean, obviously, there's the college basketball news element of you know going into last Thursday, I guess it was. We didn't know if Sean Miller was going to still be the coach. We didn't know if he was going to coach their game that night. So there was, you know, there's that. But just from an inside media standpoint, this is, you know, fascinating and I, I don't know. I, I guess I'm lacking the words to describe it because I've never seen anything quite like this where a major media outlet and a very respected reporter, we should note that, Mark Schleybaugh, who we both know, who we have a both lot of respect like, for. Both like, yeah, respect, mm-hmm, yeah. Has broken this bombshell story. Which I honestly think is probably as big a story as ESPN has broken in a long time because it's not a – it's not to say they haven't broken big stories, or certainly there's you know different things. that's more transactional nature. What is unique about this report, and I've talked to you know some other journalism friends about this, is it's not a nuanced thing really at all. You're either going to be right or you're going to be right. dead wrong. There's no like gray area where you know you're reporting on you know there's a level of discord within an organization or anything. This is it's either right. Or it's horribly wrong. There was a site, Football Scoop, on their Twitter feed that day, was had a tweet that was strangely kind of apathetic about the whole thing, where they're like, eh, sometimes sources are wrong. No, 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 no. This is not a, maybe the source is wrong. Either a prominent head coach of a college basketball team was caught on an FBI wiretap arranging a $100,000 payment for a recruit, or he wasn't. There's no gray area. He steadfastly denies it, and the school believes him. You know, they definitely met to discuss his fate. It was clear that at one point in the week, you know, there was a mention of they were the board was going to assemble and get legal advice about his contract. It sure seemed like it was headed toward, okay, how do we get out of this? But instead, they're standing by him because they believe him. And now, in the meantime, you had various reports, including from your SI yeah. legal expert, Michael McCann, saying... The reporting is inaccurate. It's inaccurate that it's not, most notably that it's not DeAndre Ayton, that if he is talking about somebody on that tape, it's not DeAndre Ayton, which is a pretty major... Well, I don't think, uh, you know, like the first report I think I saw from a, from a, an established, I don't want to say established, established media was 247. They had three different reporters. The only one I'm very familiar with is Evan Daniels, who is pretty well-respected college basketball reporter and also very plugged in on the recruiting side of things. You know, one of the things that, a lot of people have theorized is that there may have been a discussion with Sean Miller and Brandon Dawkins, but it was not about DeAndre Ayton, which would be a really bad miss in the report. There's some other people who are saying that what Sean Miller said 
is accurate that that you know it's possible that this that there was a conversation and that there was nothing nefarious on Sean Miller's end that he you know somebody may have said it was even more than that more than the hundred thousand dollars and he said we're not going to do that yeah um, that's a that's a definite possibility that the cop that he was that the because all Mark's story said was that there's a wiretap of him discussing. The but the implication, the, the implication yeah. is that he was making yeah. it happen, right? Jay Billis is not saying it's a career ender if you just, you know, somebody broached the idea and you were like, no, we're not in doing that. Another possibility is that this Dawkins guy, this 24-year-old guy working for an agent, is just all talk. That, he, that he's calling up schools saying, I can get this kid, I can get you this kid, I can get you that kid. And it's all just a bunch of baloney. And there, so there was no, there never wasn't a hundred thousand dollar payment that this guy could possibly have made. So now we want to be absolutely clear. Mark Schlebaugh uh, went on Sports Center and said, "Well, first ESPN put out a statement saying they stand by the reporting." And Mark Schlebaugh went on Sports Center and said, "I have no reason to believe anything in the story is inaccurate." So he is standing by his version of events. Sean Miller and Arizona, by extension, are standing by a completely opposite version of events. And I don't know when, if or when, we're going to find out who's right because at the end of the day, this alleged wiretap is under protective seal and theoretically and it may ne- could it never come out. It may never come out. Right. Yeah, it may never come out. I, You know, just kind of reverse engineering the story, and this is the kind of discussion you have over beers or, or dinner with other reporters. You know, one of the things that came up was if this is in a journalism class, you know, and, and this is what I wondered about. Now, again, I don't, I think Mark's a really good reporter. And so I don't, I, you know, you, nobody knows what his source is. I would imagine ESPN does, or else they probably wouldn't have gone with such a story of such magnitude. But, it, you know, again, just to kind of reverse engineer this thing, I think in retrospect, the only way you can go with something of that magnitude is if you're getting it from the FBI itself, because, you know, a defense attorney, whom and most likely you don't have much of an established relationship with, a defense attorney could provide misleading or even doctored info, and then you're out on a limb with, you know, in, in a, just a really bad place. That's why I think, unless it's somebody from the FBI, I think you're you got to be really sweating this thing out. Yeah, you know, when you think back to, like you said, this is actually one of the biggest stories they've reported or anybody's reported in a long time. But that day, you have to remember the Yahoo story with all of the names and numbers that come out that morning. Heads were spinning. Clearly, you know, college basketball is aflame. And, it, and because of that, I think, well, first of all, I'm sure there was tremendous pressure on ESPN to add their own contribution to the story. But also, at that moment, you could have told me just about anything and I would have believed it. There was Mike Krzyzewski on the tape. There was Jim Beheim on the tape. You know... There was cl- the 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 narrative that had been set that morning was everybody's getting paid, and this is just how it works. Now, with a little bit of distance, you say, "Well, wait a minute. That story on its own is just like it, 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 you would need a much much higher threshold to report that story than the Yahoo story, where they had those documents and you could see the documents. If you're talking about an a FBI wiretap, you would think you would need to have at least read the transcript." But well, even, yeah, even a transcript, though, you'd have to be – that's what I said now I'd be really skittish of is who are you getting a transcript from and how do you know the transcript is 100% accurate and real? 
There's a much larger journalism conversation to be had, and I realize that maybe some people right now are wishing we would just start talking about the combine. <laughs> but, yeah. you know, this is just the way the industry has moved, not just in sports, but, I mean, think about how much of the coverage of the Russia Trump campaign investigation, special counsel investigation. So many of the stories have come out from the Times or the Washington Post have been the 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 the, the source has been a source with knowledge of the investigation, right? A source with knowledge of the interview, like not necessarily people who are in the room. Somebody with a knowledge of it. now a lot of those have borne out to be true, but I just think in an earlier era you couldn't report something that major based on an unnamed source who's not even a firsthand source. Again, and I, I go back to the scope of, and the magnitude of this story. I mean, it's just the level of, again, I, the Jay Billis comments, you know, he'll, you know, he'll never coach again in college. Yeah. I mean, this isn't, this isn't like, oh, this guy's going to get named the receiver's coach at a Sunbelt school. You know, it's just the magnitude is so much larger. I mean, we're talking about the biggest, one of the biggest stories ESPN's had probably in the last five years. So, and, and the thing is, like, and I can't take credit for this thought. I heard, uh, I heard a podcast, a Ringer podcast with Bill Simmons, Mark Titus, the former Ohio State player, talking about this. Once the news of it is out there, there's no going back from you know people like what Jay Billis said. If the story is true, is not necessarily wrong, right? Like, it probably is going to be career ending. Well, wait a minute, career end like. It's career ending for Sean Miller if this is proven and, you know, if it's not true? No, no, no. I'm saying when an outlet like ESPN puts that out there, there is an inherent assumption that they wouldn't have reported that if they didn't know for sure that it was true. So because of that, once the news of it's out there, wherever the news came from, once it's out there, then everybody and their mother is going to pontificate on it, right? Mm-hmm. And if it turns out the story is wrong... There's no walking that back. Jay Billis right. will always be known as the guy who said Sean Miller's career is over. I follow. Yeah, and, I and uh, you know, Greg Hansen, a columnist in Tucson, wrote a column, I think, that night that he should never coach for Arizona again. He walked it back. He wrote another column over the weekend. He also made back. some really, really yes. dubious comments on a radio interview that got picked up. I actually listened to it. And then I don't know what was going on there. I mean, he apologized for some of that, but as you said, well, he wrote a column saying I screwed up, and here's how. It's like, you know, you got to now you got to be really careful before you start drawing conclusions. But again, like this didn't come from, uh, so, you know, during conference realignment. Remember how many times there'd be well, a such and such radio station is reporting that yeah. Missouri's joining the Big Ten. Like you always took that stuff with a grain of salt. But when it comes from ESPN, uses well, it must be accurate. So that is a. It's been fascinating to watch. I don't know. I mean, it kind of died out a little bit. You said people were talking about the combine, at least in college basketball, kind of died out a bit or entirely once he actually was back coaching and you know Big Ten tournament was going on this weekend. Teams are locking up. But I don't know how that goes away if they're the number one seed in the Pac-12. Well, he's going to get asked about it more. Yeah, but I don't know that. I don't know that we're going to get any more, uh, I mean, like we said, that the, if unless something's going to come, unless that wiretap comes out, I don't know that there's going to be any more way to advance the story. Yeah. I mean, look, we talked about this a, a month ago where, you know, Michigan State has a top 10 team and that this, you know, the, the outside the lines report related to Tom Izzo 
was going to be hanging around, you know, the end March Madness, and certainly, you know, this is on a this is I don't want to say on another level, but this is another angle of a dark cloud, and who knows how that's going to play out. So, as I said, that was a hot topic in kind of the social settings of India at the combine. I know there's there's one one story that's a much more feel good aspect of it that um, the the NFL media kind of basked in over the weekend. It's something certainly UCF fans know all about, and it's something that uh, a lot of college football fans know about. So I ask you, at least did you watch any of the video of Shaquem Griffin either on the bench or blazing the 40? Did you catch any of that? I did. I watched both. I think it's an awesome story. I don't. I still don't understand why there was any debate over him getting invited to the Combine in the first place. Like, did they just... You know, he he. It's not like he was a nobody. He was an extremely distinguished college football player. Why would they have left him off the combine list to begin with? I I don't know. I don't know. You know, if he if he played at Alabama or Ohio State, maybe they would have judged it differently. I have no idea. But I'm but, saying, I guess I'm asking, did they literally just say, well, that's nice that he did that in college, but he's got a prosthetic arm, so that's the end of that. Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, athleticism-wise, he has certainly backed up what people see on the field or he's flying all over the field. Well, he um, did more than back it up. He fastest 40-time ever for a linebacker at the Combine, correct? Uh, I think it's the fastest time in like a dozen years or something. Well, when it was unofficial, they said it was fastest time since 83 and or 90, uh, 2003. And then once it became official, I think I saw fastest ever. Hmm. So... <laughs> That's that's amazing, and it just is like a the ultimate vindication. I mean, it's crazy that as of late January, he wasn't even on the list of these several hundred players that were going to be invited to the combine. So he was the feel good story of the combine. I think we can agree. Yes, no doubt, absolutely no doubt. And then I saw that uh, the other thing I watched uh, was Saquon Barkley running the forty, and it's not like that. I mean, it's not like that that number alone for was it four four one four four zero. Four four zero. I mean, we've seen running backs go faster than that, but they're not built he's like two, him. He's yeah. two hundred thirty three pounds. By the way, he also vertical jumped forty one inches. The man crush that most of us in college football have had on, with Saquon Barkley for over the la- last year plus. Now people in you know, people in, in the yeah, NFL, the NFL world have definitely it too. have it. Yeah. Well, so um, look, I, I don't. I'm not an expert by any means on like team needs in the NFL. But given, and we're going to talk about quarterbacks in a minute, but given there's no consensus on who the top quarterback is, why wouldn't the Browns just take Saquon Barkley? I'm not sure. And a, a reason why they certain, why, what might push them to it, because the Browns have the number one and the number four pick, is that the Giants are sitting there at number two. And anybody who listened to our podcast last week with Rich Eisen heard us talk about the Giants and the love, the possible love affair that, that's, uh, that's budding between them and a guy who grew up in the, or was born in the Bronx and, and has a lot of Northeast ties, and certainly would be like a megawatt marketing dream for 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 a, an area that seems to to really embrace it. So that yeah, makes a lot of sense. By the way, Penn State guys for people, I remember people talking about how the Big Ten was slow. The Penn State guys lit up Indy. So you had Saquon, you had Mike Gesicki. You know, I'm going to pat myself on the back here because this was one of my guys for, from the Freaks list and from last last week as well. I mean, Gasicki did some four five four forty 
almost an 11 foot broad jump and a 41 and a half inch vertical. And he's 6'6", 252. And then this morning, right before we tape, Troy Apkia's safety runs 4.35. So, and one of the, and Christian Campbell, who's arguably as good an athlete as, as Apke, he's not even testing there and is actually going to, you know, going to wait till their pro day. So this Penn State class of athleticism that's a big reason why them winning them winning uh, the conference last year wasn't anything that fluky. Well, I think that the Big Ten is slow stereotype is has officially died, except in the Big Ten West. Like I think everybody concedes that those Ohio State, Penn State, Michigan, Michigan that those teams have speed and athleticism like the SEC or anybody else. But because Wisconsin is known as a plotting team, and Iowa. And well, Scott Frost, Scott Frost. Yeah, it's your, your, it's your turn to fix that. <laughs> I, that's his goal, right? Is to go. I mean, he's going to go in there and try to make them the fast. You know, I don't, I don't have no doubt that two years from now they will be the fastest team in that division. But it's also not like Wisconsin. If speed were the only thing that mattered, right? Miami would have run Wisconsin off the field in the Orange Bowl, and that clearly wasn't the case. Let's let's not shortchange Wisconsin. They got some athletes on that team. And by the way, I just wanted to mention real quick this quote. That went viral from Mike, that Mike Freeman got. NFL assistant coach on Saquon Barkley, quote, I would punch myself in the nuts many, many, many times to be able to draft him. I don't know how I respond to that. I did see James Franklin retweeted that yes. with a comment of his own. He, would, he said he would do that to get him back. <laughs> back to the podcast in a second. But first, Bruce, after you flew home from Indianapolis a few nights on a hotel bed, how great was it to sink back into your Lisa mattress? It's awesome. It is a great bed. You just feel like you know you are going to get a good, comfortable night of sleep. As soon as you just lay on the bed, you just feel like it feels like it's like you're on a brand new bed, you know. And as opposed to the hotel bed, which is like either flim, it's either way too rock, it's way rock hard or way too flimsy. Well, once again, proud to have Lisa as a sponsor, and what a terrific deal for our listeners. Go to lisa.com slash audible and get $100 off of a brand new mattress. If you're not familiar with Lisa, that's L-E-E-S-A. They're American-made mattresses that ship compressed in a box right to your door. You can try the mattress in your own, in your own home for 100 nights risk-free with free shipping always. And you can also try it now before you buy at 80 West Elm stores nationwide. Try out that Lisa patented universal adaptive feel. It's designed for all types of sleepers and features three premium foam layers. So again, go to lisa.com slash audible. Use promo code audible to get $100 off a mattress of your choice. That's lisa.com slash audible. All right. Any so you know, I think people are as intre- are more um, more so than who ran what forty time. Like, what goes on there? I think we've talked about it in the past, but like, what was your week like? For me, it's really this because you can watch it on TV and get a better sense of of what's going on than you can if you're physically there. To me, the best parts are the the social aspect of it, whether people you run into in the bars. Or people you end up going out to lunch with, and you know, for for me, it's like I feel like I know a lot of quarterback coaches and I know a lot of D line coaches who are in the NFL, and so you get to pick people's brains on 
who stood out, what, what they're like, even in those meetings, because a lot of times those are the first time they really have either it's a formal or it's an informal. And so you have a lot of people who are like looking at their watch. I got to go at, you know, four fifteen to go meet this guy that I'm supposed to, you know, sit down with. So it's a lot of backroom chatter and that kind of thing that I think is, uh, you know, kind of the order of the day, you know, it's, if you go in there thinking, you know, you take care of your body and, and, and eat well, you probably won't eat well. I think I had fries four days in a row. I certainly had more than my share of alcohol for the, you know, for the three nights I was there, it, you know, just as somebody who covers college and sees a lot of people, you know, at field level, you know, it's interesting to hear somebody say, well, I saw this on film. What did you, you know, I, I had a long conversation with somebody who works for NFL Network on the scouting side and another person who works with them on the research side, just about, you're kind of comparing notes of what you think, what you've heard from coaches compared to what they've seen. And so it's almost like you're, you're being downloaded for some of this stuff. Well, Um, I would say as a sideline reporter, you've seen a lot of these guys up close, much more so than NFL people at this point. At that point. Yeah. Now some of them may have seen them at the senior bowl, but some of these guys are underclassmen. So they haven't, you know, I felt, I don't know, vindicated is the right word, but I, I felt encouraged that a lot of people had the same, you know, like awe that, that I had coming out of the Apple Cup for Vita Vea. And you saw that. At the same time, you also will hear occasionally stuff about, hey, this kid was the worst. And this is not Vita Vea. This is another kid. Like so-and-so was the worst interview I've ever had. I was like, well, how, like, how's it transpiring? Because literally at one point I'm listening to this kid just kind of kind of ramble in circles and i'm writing down worst interview i've ever had on my sheet on my notes what are the chances got, that kid then went down the hall into some other team and they were like oh this is one of the best interviews we've ever had i'm guessing not because this is this is somebody who i think there's the scouts have some concern about hmm. his him socially and everything so that kind of came up but it was a it was a the guy in question as a was a very productive college player uh, I got asked a lot just because I had done the quarterback book and I had been around some of these kids when they were kids and when they were, you know, talking to Rosen when he's a junior and in high school and everything. So that was interesting to hear some of the reaction to it of who these guys are and what to make of them. And I'll give you a kind of a window into it. One of the coaches who had met with all the quarterbacks really said Rosen was the sharpest guy he'd met with. He said, he knows football inside and out. It's one of the things where you try to almost like lose them in how quickly you can go through protections and terminology and different things so you can keep up. And he said he is a really, really sharp kid. Now, on the flip side of it, you know, they're, they said everything is part of the interview. So when they watch these guys, not even in drills, when they watch him kind of like mingling around to see, you know, how is he interacting with other kids? Is he off to this? You know, is he kind of keeping to himself? And stuff that, you know, I think you can probably read too much into those things, but that's what goes on with all these personnel people and all these coaches. It's uh, it's like kind of a fascinating process. And, and again, these things, it's, it's a circus into itself. At one point, like, this is the first time I think I've ever watched, gone in to watch the 40s. I'm sorry, not the 40s, the, uh, the bench press in person. And I didn't watch much of it, but the Andy, Andy Staples and I went in just happened to be there for some of the D linemen. So we saw Harrison Phillips from Stanford do 42 reps at 225, which is actually the most. And he had actually done more than that. They deducted him two reps because, you know, he hadn't been locking out. He was just maybe short-armed it a couple times. And so, and right after that, Vita Vea did 41 reps. And I, 
had grabbed coffee with one of the D-line coaches I know in the league, and he was like, he's like, yeah, they could have probably knocked those guys for like 10 reps. He goes, it doesn't matter. Once you get to 30 reps, he goes, you're, you, that's more than fine to prove you're strong, you know, strong enough to last in there um, for what they're looking for. It's just, you know, it's, it's stuff you're trying to, trying to kind of back in and everything. I'm, I'm curious, just, you know, you've covered these guys for three and four or five years. Who did you think would present well? I'm not talking about necessarily run a great 40 time or vertical, but do you think would like, would uh, present well in front of the media, present well in meetings? Well, that, it, it kind of cracks me up every time I see Josh Rosen referred to as like his concern is his personality because, and I did watch the, I watched a little bit of his press conference. If you are actually to listen to him talk, I would think you would be impressed, right? He's very well-spoken and thoughtful in, I guess you could say a little different, but not necessarily in a negative way. Like I assume people that were around his podium would have come away impressed. Yes, we. Yes, I. I think so. Anybody who didn't, I think, is just goes in there looking to find something really, you know, looking for ghosts. I think also same thing. Lamar Jackson. I think some people were surprised. I don't know what they were expecting, but they were surprised. You know, just how charismatic he is. Yeah, I think Lamar Jackson is a very. There's three guys. Well, four. Four guys who are very polarizing. One is Lamar Jackson. One is Josh Rosen. Another one is Baker Mayfield. I can go more into that in a minute. The one that I know you seem to have jumped on the table for, or at least saw the legs off the table. I don't know. Maybe that's a better analogy. You're not on the Josh Allen bandwagon, are you, Stu? I've read some of your stuff. Yeah, I mean, I think that's uh, that's putting it mildly. I mean, I did an entire story breaking down, comparing his very, very pedestrian college stats to those of every first-round quarterback of the last 10 years. And there's only one quarterback with comparable numbers, and that was Jake Locker, who was another kind of, well, he's got the frame, he's got the build, he's athletic. We'll just overlook the fact that he he uh, can't complete passes. Jake Locker, not as big. Maybe like two inches shorter or an inch and a half shorter. But Jake Locker did not have a – this guy has a ridiculous arm, like even apparently even stronger than Pat Mahomes' arm. The one, like I would say, and he didn't get drafted that high in terms of like huge guy, athletic, big arm. You know, that was a little Logan Thomas to me. Yep, you know, that's like, another like, good comparison. Like Jake, uh, Jake Locker, everybody liked they met. He was a dude, you know, all that. But yeah, the accuracy was a big, big concern. Maybe if we started, why don't we just start, like people will say, oh, accuracy is a concern as if that's just one, like one little issue. But really what it means is they're not good at completing passes. And that's really the whole goal of being a quarterback. So I don't care what kind of rocket arm you have. If you can't get the ball into your receiver's hands, to me that would be a deal breaker. But what do I know? I'm not an NFL GM. Yeah, from, uh, so on the flight over, so I had a long trip, to you know, flew through Detroit. We got a snowstorm in there, so we were delayed. Jordan Palmer, Carson Palmer's younger brother, mm-hmm. who's a backup NFL quarterback, and he trains quarterbacks for the draft. He and I traveled together. You know, we sat, you know, I sat with him on the flight to Indy, and he's been training both Sam Darnold and uh, Josh Allen. And I asked him about the accuracy concern because I, I'm with you. I'm, I'm maybe I'm not with you as much, but I am. You know, I, I see what you're saying, and I'd be skeptical of Josh Allen. I, I would not take him in the top 15 picks. I would of the of the 
Josh Rosen, Sam Darnold, Baker Mayfield, I would not take him over any of those guys in the same frame of what do I know either. But so I asked, I asked Jordan, I said, well, what, what, you know, how do you explain that? And he goes, well, you watched him on a ton of film, broke down everything. And when he would be off, he was overstriding and the ball would, you know, it would, he would sail on him. And so we, we worked on that and worked on it. And that's what we've been working on now talking to, to people who were there for his throwing session in the dome, not only were they awestruck by the big arm, they thought he threw it well. So we'll see. I mean, then, you know, his pro day where he's going to throw to his receivers, you know, I guess it's in a month or so. We'll see if he can convince more people that he can be accurate enough. Because if you look at just basic numbers of how he performed, and we're not even talking about against, against great competition. It wasn't like he was facing you know, Alabama's defense in those. I mean, when he played power five teams, it was not good. It was not good. So that's going to be a much debated topic. Well, why don't we discuss it further with Brady Quinn? And now we're pleased to be joined by my colleague from Fox Sports, Brady Quinn, former NFL quarterback who was at the Combine as well for his one of his many other jobs. For Sirius Radio with doing NFL. Brady, thanks for joining us on the Audible. Beyond, guys. Thanks so much for having me on. So let's start with this. So when I first saw you the other day, you had on a, in a bunch of these quarterbacks people think are going to go in the first round. Anything you took from your conversations with these guys that you were you were visiting with before they, they were throwing? I think the first thing you notice is there's clearly a difference just in their overall personality and, and how that, you know, just from my experience, having had gone to the combine, going through the interview process, uh, kind of getting a sense of, of how that'll play out. I mean, Josh Rosen was incredibly articulate, thoughtful with his responses to a lot of our questions. And, you know, again, I think that can be polarizing in some ways to coaches. You know, sometimes coaches, they don't want to dig in deep with answers. They just want yes, no. They just want, you know, th- this is what my thought process was. And, and they like things simplified. So kind of curious to see how he would be received in the interviews. And then with Baker Mayfield, you know, I I started off right away asking about, you know, his antics in Lawrence, Kansas with his his sideline gestures towards their players and then maybe some off the field issues that he had. And, you know, his response was, you know, look, I'm young. I've made mistakes. I'm not perfect. Sometimes I let the competition or the moment maybe get the best of me, but you know, in the end, you know, I feel like I'm growing towards the type of person that, you know, is a, is the face of a franchise. So I thought they, you know, those two in particular, Josh Rosen and Baker Mayfield handled themselves extremely well when they came on and spoke with us. But the guy who kind of stole the show, who I got to kind of interview and talk to was Mike White, quarterback out of Western Kentucky. And that particular day, guys, we had former general manager for the Tampa Bay Bucks, Mark Dominic up there with us. And when he left the stage, Mark Dominic kind of said, you know what, that's the kind of attitude and demeanor that I just, it works well in a locker room. It kind of works well where a little bit unassuming, but seemed humble and, and seemed to kind of understand how he should approach being the quarterback and being a starter for some NFL franchise. So Brady, obviously every player at every position does these interviews with the teams, these get to know you sessions, but do you think it's particularly important for the quarterbacks because of what you just said, where they're going to be expected to be the leader of the team. Yeah, I think that's part of it. I think the toughest part about all of it, especially if you're taking a quarterback, right? Because I talked to one general manager. I don't want to say which team, but 
you know, they had said that they literally devoted like half their scouts just to that position. And they said, look, this is your objective. Go find who you think is the best quarterback in this draft. Come back with your report. And then the other half is, is going to focus on the other positions and the other parts of the draft. I mean, that's how much they felt like they needed to devote to figuring out which one of these guys is their guy that they fall in love with and they propose to and they enter into that marriage more or less, which is drafting a, a first-round quarterback in particular for one of those top 10 teams. So you know, I think it's important from that aspect that these guys in regards to the teams that I'm referring to, they have to feel very, very confident about who this person is. And it's tough to do that in just a 15 minute session, but they do attempt to try to get under their skin or try to test them uh, to get a sense of how they're going to respond to adversity, how they're going to respond to other situations just so that they're not caught by surprise when they do indeed draft one of these quarterbacks. So you've been through the combine experience not that long ago. So there's a lot of the same drills and things they're asking of a quarterback to do. From what you saw on the field Saturday, who impressed you? And what would you say maybe is some of it overblown? Just how much attention gets paid into what we saw, you know, if we're watching NFL Network on Saturday afternoon to see all these guys throw? The one thing that I think I anticipate as well as a lot of other people who, you know, go down to the Manning passing Academy or are kind of a part of, you know, following college football throughout the course of the year was Josh Allen has a strong arm. Everyone knew it. Anyone who watched film on him could see it. I think what happens at the combine is, and you can't help but fall into this trap is you see them up close in personal or personal and in person. And then you're going to look at how they compare to the other quarterbacks you could potentially draft. And it's very rare that you get an opportunity where they're all in the same place. So when you're kind of choosing between like what you like, what you don't like, they're all right next to each other, or they're all throwing in, you know, succession one after another. And, and that's where, you know, I think Josh Allen's arm strength really stood out. And the fact that in that first group, besides Josh Allen, I didn't really think there was anyone, anyone else who really moved the needle. I mean, Sam Darnold was supposed to be in that group. He elected not to throw. Lamar Jackson was obviously the other uh, headlining quarterback in that group. And I actually thought he, he you know, it was better than I expected him to be as far as his footwork and how he looked. But obviously, this is going to throw the, the ball as well as Josh Allen could be. So Josh Allen, probably by far and away, was the guy that I think won the day if you had to pick a quarterback. But you, know, you, you look at that next group, and to me, there's a ton of value. I mean, Josh Rosen looked very complete, kind of what we expected. Baker Mayfield was accurate. He demonstrated that he has a stronger arm than people anticipated. And then he can drop him under center, something we didn't see him do much when he first started at Texas Tech and then throughout his time in Oklahoma. And, and then there was some you know, value in the sense of Kyle Loretta, Logan Woodside, uh, Tanner Lee, even who did have a great year at Nebraska this past year, uh, but he looked about as good as anyone in T-shirt and shorts throwing. Uh, Mike White, who I kind of earlier mentioned, I mean, there was some quality in that second group. It wasn't just the top-tier guys. So all in all, I think this is a class that you know has top-end talent, but also has a lot of depth. So right before you came on, Brady, Bruce and I were talking about Josh Allen and our, mostly me, but both of us, our skepticism coming from the college standpoint where he didn't produce very well. He didn't have a great completion percentage against Mountain West competition in particular. And, and you know, I, I guess... I'm a little bewildered by all the fascination with him, but you might, you know much more than I do about the quarterback position. How important is the fact that he has this rocket arm versus the actual, you know, statistics that he produced in college? Well, I think the biggest thing is, you know, 
every situation circumstance is different. What that player gets drafted into has the biggest impact on whether or not they're going to be a success. I mean, that's just the bottom line, all right? Because, you know, all these guys have talent or they wouldn't be in the position they're in right now or they're at the combine. So it starts with that. What Josh Allen has that no one else has is that combination of rare size, mobility, arm strength, uh, experience, all those things. Now, the experience as far as where he played wasn't top-notch college football, and he wasn't the most successful, but he also wasn't surrounded by as much. I mean, when we were breaking down on a game when he played against Iowa, I mean, I'm kind of sitting there watching it thinking, doesn't have great protection. There's a couple balls that were absolute dimes that players dropped, and I'm thinking to myself, like, okay, like this is probably going to be the running story the rest of the season. And when you look at his, his stats and all that, like someone had made comment that, you know, they, they kind of look similar to what Matthew Stafford's looked like coming out of Georgia. They're not that big of a difference. And I, I'd say the one thing that he has going for him that maybe Carson Wentz didn't was when Carson Wentz missed games in college, his team still won. They were very successful before him. They probably will be after him. It was just one of those prominent programs that you're accustomed to seeing. At Wyoming, when Josh Allen was out, the team struggled. And, and you kind of got the sense that he was everything to that team, even though that, that didn't mean a ton in regards to win losses. So I think what you're tasked with is figuring out, you know, how much you can take or how much you can apply from what he did in college and then how that's going to play into what he can be, because he's got probably the highest ceiling of all the quarterbacks in this year's draft. But the difference is, can you get out of him and can you put him in a system and in, in a situation that allows him to have that kind of success? Okay, I'm going to put you on the spot. You know the Cleveland. You, you're an Ohio guy. You know the Cleveland Browns. You were drafted by them. You played for them. If you're the Cleveland Browns with the first pick in the draft, and you're taking a quarterback, you're not going to take Saquon. You're going to take a quarterback. Who are you drafting? Right now, Sam Darnold. And you know, I, I, I wish I would have had the chance to watch Cut throw in person. You know, two years ago, I called a bunch of his games uh, for Fox and and got to break down his film. Got to watch him. And I was very enamored with him. Just his, his size, his athleticism, the type of throws he would make on his run, in particular to the left, when he wouldn't necessarily be in the proper body position, and, and just how well he played in the big moments. And then you watch 2017, and you know that they had some pieces move on to the NFL. He, he still is battling without great protection. You, know, you talk to some people who are around the program, they talk about the play calling and how that's discussed and, and just how difficult it is you know, for, for them to be able to have consistency on offense, which I think had more to do with the play calling than anything else. And once you start to read into it more, it kind of leads you to like why, I don't want to say take a step back, but dealt with not as much success and maybe some more turnovers and issues than what he had in the past. So I, I feel like to me, he maybe doesn't have as high of a ceiling as Josh Allen does, but in the end, I do think he's the safest pick as far as what he did at the college level, what he could project to be and how, his tool set could really translate to the NFL. Yeah, I think he would have the highest floor of these guys. I think there's a, probably the least chance of him being a complete disaster. You know, I do the turnovers do concern um, me, but I don't know. Do you agree with that? I mean, I think it's more Josh Rosen in my sense. Like, I think Josh is, and then really Baker, like, like Baker, if you just took away the off the field stuff, I mean, he was phenomenal in college. Like, he's arguably one of the best college quarterbacks of all time, right? So like, why not, why not say him it. number one? Because my issue with him is, is like, how much better is he going to be? I mean, in all honesty, like, it sounds terrible to say, but, like, how much better is he going to be when he gets to the NFL? Like, is he going to be able to maintain a pace of, 
like ridiculous accuracy and record setting numbers and being a system that really plays to his skill sets. Cause I, I do think there's gonna be a learning curve for him. Like that's kind of my concern. Like with Josh Allen, with Sam Darrell, like these bigger guys who I, I think will continue to improve in the right situation. Like I, I think they just have a little bit more upside than Baker Mayfield has at this point. Like I'm not really sure what more you're going to do to bring more out of like what he's already been. And that's not a knock. That's just, where I think he's at. It's kind of where I think Josh Rosen's at. Josh Rosen's a smart quarterback. We all get that. He's not going to become more mobile. His mechanics are somewhat flawless when you watch him drop, when you watch him move. So how much, how much better is he really going to get? Like, I think, you know, they have to be in situations where they have talent out around them that helps them out. And Baker Mayfield probably has to be in the right system that allows him to be a little bit more mobile and move around and be in shotgun more so than under center. And, and that's where he's probably going to excel. I just I don't know how much better he'll get over the course of his career. How important is it at this point what kind of offense they played in college? Because, you know, I've seen the knock against Baker Mayfield. He's coming from the air raid offense. And there haven't been a lot of successful NFL QBs to come out of that. But at the same time, we're now seeing more and more convergence where, you know, the offense that the Eagles ran to win the Super Bowl looked a lot more like the modern college spread offense than – you know, certainly the traditional pro-style offense has been. Well, I think what we're now seeing more than ever is RPOs, the run-pass options. And I think people kind of watched what Chip Kelly did with Philly when he first got there. And I think if he could do it all over again, and he tried to do this in San Francisco a little bit, because I actually called one of those games for Fox, and it was actually his last game when he played the Seattle Seahawks. And I kind of asked him then. I said, you know, can you... Uh, you know, have success running this system on this offense over the course of a year because it seems like your defense gets worn out and all this stuff. And he said, look, we don't play at the same pace as we initially did when I first got to Philly and when we did in college. He's like, I've realized that. I had to make the, those sorts of adjustments. I think that's one of the adjustments that Doug Peterson made was he looked at the fact that RPO game can be very effective. You just can't run a play every 15 to 20 seconds and ex- expect one to be able to convert as much as you do on third down and in the red zone and have success that way. But two, not wear down your defense. You have a limited amount of bodies on defense. And plus, that, that Eagles defense wasn't built to the point that it is now to be as, as good as they are, to be able to get you know, opponents off the field or, and, or, and, and, and you know, stop them on third down. So I think we'll continue to see that. So, you know, look, obviously organizations are willing to implement some of those different sorts of concepts and plays that play to the strengths of – the guys they're drafting, they just, they're going to have to do it a ton in, in, in the NFL, or especially when you're talking about a quarterback like Baker Mayfield, only because you don't see him go through, you know, all five reads in a progression. You know, I, I think a lot of his reads are, if they are a pure progression, meaning you're just going one, two, three, four, five, he's usually getting the ball in his first or second read. And maybe that's a credit to Lincoln Riley for what, his ability as a play caller. That's part of it. But I, and I also think they divide it up in one high, two high reads or middle field open, middle field closed, where if you have a two safety look, you work to one side. If you have a, you know, split or a, a post safety look or a middle field closed look, you work to the other side. I, I see a lot of that. I, I don't see him working through a lot of those progressions. And, and that's one of the, honestly, that's the toughest thing is being able to read a defense and not just looking at your guys and understand where you need to go with the football and understand more often than not in the NFL you're going to have to go to number two or to number three or number four in your progression and be able to make that work and still find completions and then find positive gains from that. You sounded like you were intrigued by how Lamar threw it the other day on the field, right? 
It's fair to say that. Yeah, I, I was actually more intrigued by his footwork. Like for a guy who really didn't play under center much, watching him, I, I was surprised. I mean, he, he did a good job of kind of getting into rhythm in his drops. He didn't look like he was off balance at the top. He didn't look like he was hurried or rushed. I mean, he, he really had a good pacing, nice positioning for what I think you're looking for for a quarterback in the pocket. So we talk. So you see him as. Hey, he's a he's a quarterback. I don't, you know, I know he could probably be an effective receiver, but let let him develop as a quarterback. Or where would you be if you're an NFL GM? Well, first off, like let's not confuse how dynamic he is with the football with his ability to be able to, to convert to wide receiver. Like that's a compliment for a very athletic quarterback. That's disrespectful to every player that's ever played wide receiver in the NFL. It's much like Tim Tebow playing baseball. Like, I get it. You're a good athlete, but to all of a sudden say you're going to be playing the majors, that's a whole other step. And that's like leapfrogging guys who spend their entire life trying to make that happen. So to me, like, I think he can play quarterback. I think you have to put him in the right system until he continues to grow and refine his skill set. I mean, he's probably the biggest risk reward you'll find in the draft at quarterback because you know his athletic ability. You know that he's he's definitely not a finished project. I mean, there's a lot of things he needs to work on. He has a tendency to overstride. His legs get too close together at the top of his pocket when it's a clean pocket. I do think mechanically he starts to break down when he's forced to move in the pocket. And, you know, look, his strength is running and scrambling. So what do you expect? When he, you know, gets flushed or pressured, instead of moving to set up the throw, he'll, he'll move to, you know, get outside and scramble. And that, that happens with young players. And he's successful in doing that, so you wouldn't want to take him away from it. My concern is the size. He's you know six foot three, two hundred pounds. Can he take all the beatings and hits that mobile quarterbacks take when they run as much as they do? That's a concern mixed with the situation he enters into. If someone's going to try to force him to play right away, that could be I don't want to say a disaster, but it could be tough on him where he might flash early on, and then we might start to see some of the true colors come later. I mean, look, Deshaun Watson was incredible last season, but it was for what seven games. I mean, let's see what he looks as he, you know, has an offseason to digest everything and recover, and then defenses have an offseason to kind of adjust to what Bill O'Brien and him are doing. All right, guys, what do you say we end with a college football topic? Brady, your Fighting Irish this coming season are going to visit the den that is Ryan Field in Evanston, Illinois, and the considerable home field advantage <laughs> that the guys in purple will have. No, it'll be it'll be 70% Notre Dame fans. But okay, we're coming off a season where Notre Dame improved the win total quite a bit, but also got fans hopes up a little bit that they might make the playoff and then obviously it didn't end as well. How are you feeling about the program right now? Look, I think it was a nice bounce back from what was a disappointing year in, in 2016. I think the question is, you know, they lose a decent amount. I mean, you look at some of the players they lose like their left side of their offensive line. I mean, Quentin Nelson and Mike McGlinchey might be two top 20 picks in this year's draft. And, and even some other players have kind of moved on from the program. Like I was watching the DB say Max Redfield is on there at one point. So you, you just kind of look at what they're going to be losing and what they're going to be missing out on. And clearly they're going to have to reload. And the biggest question is going to be the quarterback position. Is, uh, is Phil Jerkovich you know, going to be the guy? Is it going to be Ian Book or Brandon Wimbush? The way that season ended, you really don't have any any sort of idea at this point. I think you got to go in the spring bowl, let those guys compete, and see you know who ends up coming out on top. Um, that's going to be the first question. And then what, what's their identity on offense? Like, I thought Chip Long's done a tremendous job since he got there, but now that Josh Adams is gone, now that you know part of your offensive line is gone, what are you hanging your hat on and relying on? You, you sit there and say, well, maybe the passing game with some of the receivers they have coming back, but you know again, there's a question mark at quarterback. And some of your best targets are gone. I mean, St. Gra- Brown had a nice combine. During, uh, during Smythe had a nice 
uh, combine as well. So you're losing some of your best options there. Like I, I think it could be a little bit of a transition year for Notre Dame. And that's not even mentioning anything in regards to the defense. And obviously there was a, a transition there um, with Elko moving on, going down to what Texas A&M. And then mm-hmm. you got Harry Heaskamp. He moves on to Chicago Bears. So, you know, it's tough. You, you got some question marks and then you, you've lost some guys who I think were pretty pivotal in, in these young men getting developed and having success. Man, Brady, it sounds like you're expecting some payback when when your team goes to Southern California to face Liner at Selma Mater. Well, I mean, they got some questions of their own. You know, <laughs> yeah. Sam Darnold's not there anymore. Rojo's missing the backfield, and, and I'm kind of curious to see, like, you know, if like I, I remember back we used to play USC. Like they had like the number one recruiting class, maybe like three out of four years or something like that. It was ridiculous, and, and I just don't see the same type of of players across the board. Like you see the skill position player and the quarterback position but not so much up front anymore. And then that's where I've kind of been surprised that uh, we haven't seen many you know, offensive linemen taken from USC in quite some time. I mean, Zach Banner's the first one that got drafted that I can think of in recent history with a fourth-round pick who got cut his rookie year. So, so kind of curious to see how have they rebound and like what, what their program looks like. And the only reason I bring that up is because it kind of played into why I feel like Sam Darnold, again, didn't exceed expectations this past year. It was, they didn't really protect them the past couple of years where he's been quarterback. But anyways, I think that's been an issue for them now for the past few years. So kind of curious to see like what USC will be coming into it. I and mean, I think, look, your favorites are going to be same old, same old Ohio state, Alabama, you know, Penn state, I think is going to be very, very good. Washington should be, um, you know, pretty darn good this year, even with some of the pieces that they lose and some of the transition they're going through on offense and all that. But yeah, I mean, we, we, we could, we could get on another show and talk about all the different things that could go on in college football next year. That's, that's, that's a show in itself, right? Uh, that's actually going to be five months of shows starting next <laughs> week. <laughs> so, we wanted to have you on Combine is a very timely topic, but yes, uh, we will have a lot of episodes here devoted to the coming college football season. Well, so Brady, where man, I always always value your guys' opinions. Thank you. So Brady, outside of the fall, where else can uh, our audience find your work? Yeah, I mean, basically Sirius XM NFL Radio. I'm on Mondays through Wednesdays from 11 a.m. to 3 p.m. Eastern. Uh, Fox Sports Radio, I do a Sunday night show from 8 p.m. to 11 p.m. And Bruce, you know this. You've been our MVP guest a number of times over the course of the year. And then uh, CBS Sports HQ, which is their live digital streaming network, just launched uh, a couple weeks ago now. You can go on there basically almost every day, and, and you'll see all sorts of live streaming content. Uh, stats, highlights, analysis, all that good stuff. Uh, you have a show on the Food Network too, Brady? Course the year. Brady, do you have a show I'm on the Food Network? I'm thinking about it. Uh, no, legitimately, my agent just asked if my wife would be in something like that. She loves cooking, and I said I love eating. So I'm not sure how <laughs> I could help out on that show, but I could definitely be that, that goon that just kind of sits there and eats all the good food that she makes. Well, that is very prolific. So we appreciate your time. As always, it was good running into you in, uh, in Indy, and um, I'm sure we'll talk to you soon. Thanks for the insight. Sounds good, guys. Thanks for having me on. Thanks, Brady. All right. Well, it's been fun talking NFL Combine and quarterbacks, Bruce. But like I said toward the end of that interview with Brady, I'm looking forward to talking some college football here soon. We have plenty of time for that, Stu. Uh, Before we go, I noticed something that showed up on my Twitter timeline. Uh, A Wall Street Journal story about your company, The Athletic. Uh, I haven't read it yet. What does this mean? Are uh, Are you leaving me? You've only had a few hours to read. You haven't had a chance to read it yet, huh? No, I have not. 
Well, yeah, I mean, big news for The Athletic that came out in the Wall Street Journal on Monday that um, the company has raised another $20 million in investment. And we have big, big expansion plans for this year that sometimes when the company wouldn't want to want me to go on a podcast and say this, but it's right there in the article. So I can tell you that we plan to have basically double the amount of staff from it's 120 now to between 200 and 350 by the end of the year and to have a writer covering writers in every market that has a pro sports team so i mean it's it's just it's exciting when i got there in july which was not that long ago we were still just kind of a tiny little startup and i've watched it grow very quickly in a short amount of time and that's nothing compared to the growth that's going to take place over the rest of this year are you getting a wardrobe budget now well, you know, now that I'm back to just being a writer and not being on TV every week like you, I don't really have a wardrobe. I just, uh, I, I can dress like a slob and still do my job perfectly well. I'm sure that that's not something you should put on the business card, by the way. But, um, well, I'm, uh, I'm excited for you and your colleagues. So that's, that is good news, it's especially in the time of, of uh, where you want to see businesses thriving and growing in our audience well uh, yeah a year ago this time you and i were dealing with a much different kind of in- environment and many people unfortunately still are where businesses are cutting jobs and cutting jobs so to be part of a company that is rapidly adding sports writing jobs is uh um, a much uh more gratifying place to be in a year later all right well we appreciate uh we appreciate brady for joining us it's always good to talk some nfl since they are college guys for a while um and we will talk to you guys next time if you enjoy our podcast and you haven't subscribed yet what are you waiting for subscribe to the audible on apple podcasts google play wherever you get your podcasts leave a five-star review while you're there we'd like to thank our presenting sponsor for 2018 trader joe's we'd also like to thank our producer nick fink our theme song is dangerous by kevin and the octaves you can download their music on itunes or spotify You can subscribe to my college football website, The All-American, by going to theathletic.com slash theaudible, where you get a 25% discount and a seven-day free trial. Follow Bruce at Bruce Feldman CFB on Twitter. You can follow me at SL Mandel. See you next time.